Hello, hello, everyone. This is Volts for February 8th, 2023. Decarbonizing U.S. transportation with an eye toward global justice. I'm your host, David Roberts. The transportation sector is the leading carbon emitter in the U.S. economy, and unlike some other sources, it is on the rise. Decarbonizing it is inevitably going to involve wholesale electrification of personal vehicles. We are going to need lots and lots of EVs. That's going to mean more demand for minerals like lithium, which is mined in environmentally destructive ways and almost everywhere opposed by local and indigenous groups. But lithium can be mined in more or less harmful ways, depending on where and how it's done and how well it's governed. And the number of EVs needed in the future, and the consequent demand for lithium, is not fixed. The U.S. transportation sector could decarbonize in more or less car-intensive ways. If U.S. cities densified and built better public transportation and more walking and cycling infrastructure, fewer people would need cars, and the cars could get by with smaller batteries. That would mean less demand for lithium, less mining, and less destruction. But how much less? That brings us to a new report, Achieving Zero Emissions with More Mobility and Less Mining. From the Climate and Community Project in UC Davis, it models the lithium intensity of several different pathways to decarbonization for the U.S. personal vehicle market to determine how much lithium demand could be reduced in different zero-carbon scenarios. It is a novel line of research, hopefully a sign of more to come, and an important step toward deepening and complicating the discussion of U.S. transportation decarbonization. I was thrilled to talk to its lead author, Thea Rio-Francos, an Andrew Carnegie Fellow and Associate Professor of Political Science at Providence College, about the reality of lithium mining, the coming demand for more lithium, and the ways that demand can be reduced through smart transportation choices. All right, Thea Rio-Francos, welcome to Volts. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for inviting me. I've been uh, meaning to get you on forever and waiting for the right occasion, and this is just a, a humdinger of an occasion here, this report. It's uh, it's right at the nexus of like a lot of things I cover a lot and a lot of things I feel like I should cover more, bringing them together. So before we jump into the details, I just want to take a step back and summarize the the report, the framing of the report as I see it, because I've I've seen and, and heard some media coverage of the report, and I'm always just a little frustrated by how other journalists <laughs> cover things. Understandably, <laughs> you know, it's like uh, it's it's just this weird oblique. Like they don't take the time to sort of say like what is the main thing before getting on to, into weird little side questions. So so I'll just say, as I understand it, the premise of the report here is we need to decarbonize transportation. Yes. And electrifying vehicles is a huge and unavoidable part of that. And extracting a lot of lithium is an unavoidable part of that. However, 
and here I will quote the report, the volume of extraction is not a given. Neither is it a given where that extraction takes place, under what circumstances, the degree of the environmental and social impacts, or how mining is governed. So the idea here is, yes, we have to decarbonize, we have to electrify, we have to electrify transportation, we need electric vehicles, but there are better and worse ways of doing that, more and less just ways of doing that, more and less lithium-intensive ways of doing that, and we should do it the best way we can. Is that fair? That is fair. And you've also quoted one of actually my personal favorite lines of the report, because I, I agree with you that it really gets at the heart of what our goals are, the kind of questions that we're asking, and also this desire to align goals that might seem intentional with one another, right? Which is, you know, rapid decarbonization on the one hand, and on the other hand, protecting biodiversity, indigenous rights, you know, respecting other land uses. And those can feel, and to an extent, you know, materially are in tension with one another in specific instances. But our goal was to say, you know, is there a way to have it all, you know, from a climate justice <laughs> perspective? You know, what's the win-win or what's the way to get away from at least a sort of zero-sum framing? Right. Or just a North Star, a, a way of, to look, a goal to pursue rather than just sort of this binary notion of we're going to electrify transportation or not. There's just a, a ton of room within that to do it in different ways. So that's the main thing here. We're thinking about how to decarbonize transportation in the best possible way, where it's both rapid decarbonization and as just as possible and as light on the earth as possible. So within that, you sort of take as your primary metric lithium. You compare um, scenarios based on their lithium intensity. So maybe let's just start there and you can just explain to listeners why choose lithium as your sort of central um, metric? Great question. Because one could imagine this report being replicated across a whole host of transition minerals. Yeah. And I actually hope that it is, right? I, I do see this as a kind of opening to a research agenda that we hope is, is malleable uh, in other sectors as well. Why lithium? You know, maybe let's zoom out a little bit and just say how urgent it is to decarbonize the U.S. transportation sector, Right. And so that's that's why transportation, which we can talk about more later, of course. But yeah, we're going to I think in the latter half, we're going to get into transportation and U.S. transportation. All that it, it helps us sort of understand why the battery and the battery helps us understand why lithium. So I'll just treat it in that order briefly, which is, you know, transportation sector number one and main still sort of rising emission sector in the mm. U.S., right? In order to decarbonize that sector, there's lots of forms of transportation. We're focusing on ground transportation here. And the prevailing technology for decarbonizing ground transportation is the lithium-ion battery. That may change in the future, and I'm happy to sort of entertain that. We can talk about it if we want. But right now, in terms of commercial viability, scale, and just the actual like material production that's going on in the world, it's the lithium-ion battery. When we sort of dig into those batteries, and I know you've covered batteries on prior shows, there's a whole set of different minerals and metals used in the cathodes, the anodes, the separators, etc., Lithium is central, though. Lithium is the kind of non-substitutable element in that recipe. You can go, you know, to different cathode chemistries that do or don't use nickel, that do or don't use cobalt, etc., right? The iron phosphate versus the MNC. And those have different benefits or drawbacks in terms of energy density, power density, etc. But lithium is in all of them right now. Mm -hmm. And so lithium felt like a good first cut, a good sort of catch-all. You know, I'll also say that 
we expect that if we overall focus on reducing the raw material needs of the energy transition, those benefits carry on beyond lithium, right? A lot of our suggestions would also reduce mining of other materials, including those outside of the battery, right? Like copper, if we look at the broader car. So we chose lithium for those reasons. One other thing to sort of note is that lithium has also been a particular target of a range of public policy and corporate strategies, you know, over the past couple of years, right? Mm. There's I hate to kind of use imperialist language, but I'll just use it because it's how the media frames it, right? There's like a scramble for lithium, a rush for lithium, a lithium boom. It's considered essential and strategic by public and private sectors in ways that are also making it sort of a laboratory of new corporate and public policies. And so that's another reason to focus on lithium. Yeah, kind of an early indicator of how these institutions will approach decarbonization more broadly or or materials more broadly. Absolutely. And playing into that and also kind of a result of that at the same time is like the crazy price volatility with lithium over the past <laughs> few years. And and maybe volatility is not the best way to put it because it's been just consistently rising. Over the past decade, it's been super volatile, big crashes, big booms and busts. But in the past few years, we've just seen steady increases getting to the point of historic highs last year. So lithium is now a huge factor in the price and affordability of batteries, which are in turn the main and most expensive component of an EV. So from a totally different angle, we care about how much are batteries and EVs going to cost and why, like what is their cost structure? Lithium's like a good place to look as well. Let's talk about lithium then. Let's just start with, because it's funny, you know, prior to EVs, the lithium market was, you know, looking from the perspective of what it's going to be in a fully uh, electrified world, pretty sleepy kind of backwater market. And it's, you know, it's one of many things in the energy transition world that is sort of quite suddenly being expected to 10x itself. So let's just start with the lithium market as it exists now. Where does it come from? You say there are four main countries where lithium is mined. You know, we should say, most listeners probably get this, but we should just say lithium, the raw material is spread pretty evenly all over the world, but it's mined in very specific places. So talk about where those are. Yeah, with with a lot of extractive industries, but really very much so with lithium, the map of deposits or of underlying, you know, existing lithium in the Earth's crusts or, or oceans is totally distinct from the map of production, right? The map of production right. is a really small subset. So that that's important to keep in mind. But where it's currently mined is Australia, Chile, China, and Argentina. Those are the top four. Those have been the top four. They've actually jockeyed and sort of changed positions at different moments, you know, over the past few years. But those have been the top four. They are the top four. And they will sort of be the top four for at least the next few years, right? Mines take a long time to build, which we can talk about if we want. Uh, so that's not going to instantly change. But I foresee that in the next decade, thereabouts, you know, we're going to have some different players on that top, and it'll be more like a top 10 list rather than a top four list, mm-hmm. right? But that's where it's mined now. And one other interesting thing about lithium, we don't have to get too uh, nerdy about lithium per se, but it's a weird element because it's it's a very reactive metal. So you don't find it as a metal in nature. You find it in all these heterogeneous compounds, right? So there's lithium bearing clays, there's lithium in geothermal brines, there's lithium in non-geothermal brines, there's lithium in spodumene, there's lithium in other types of hard rock deposits that haven't actually been mined so much yet, uh, but will be on the horizon. 
there's really low concentrations of lithium in the ocean. You know, I don't see that as per se the next frontier, but you know, it's there. So there's lithium comes in all forms really. And each of those has like different extractive techniques, different environmental impacts, X, Y, and Z, but it's a real, you know, it's really variable. One of the things that follows from that, from it being reactive and thus not found in pure form is that whatever it is you're digging or hauling up, you then have to do a lot of processing to it to get the lithium out, which tends to be the gross part. So let's get nerdy a little bit. There are two main mining techniques you talk about in the report, hard rock and brine. Let's just briefly go through those. So like hard rock is in, as I understand it, Australia. Tell us what hard rock lithium mining looks like. Just like what's the process? The nice thing about this form of mining from a listener's perspective is it's much more like every other form of mining that we're familiar with, right? So we're removing large quantities of hard rock. This is in Western Australia. Uh, That's where the lithium assets are there. And then, you know, there's a basic level of processing that happens in Australia, which, you know, separates out what is considered waste rock, right, from where the, the lithium is in higher concentration. And then pretty immediately, the vast majority, like 95% of still relatively unprocessed lithium is then sent over to China for further processing and refining. And then that enters rather directly into, of course, their battery production. And then there's the brine technique, which is... Yes. Grosser, I think, uh, fair to say. Maybe just briefly describe what it means to have lithium and brine and what it involves getting it out. You know, I had the opportunity to see um, some of the brine operations in in Nevada. Um, I got a very cool mountain view of them when I was actually looking at the Rhyolite Ridge project. And and that, if you sort of hike around a bit, you can look at the Silver Peak brine production in, in Nevada, which is the one lithium mine in the U.S. now in production. So we have brine in the U.S., We also have brine in Chile and and Argentina and and elsewhere in the world. So Chile is a place that I've done a lot of research, but the processes are quite similar in in Chile and Argentina and actually also in in Nevada. In fact, the way that brine is, is removed and evaporated, which I'll get into in a moment, in Chile was first developed in Nevada and kind of exported to Chile. Um, so that's, there's kind of an interesting whole story of like U.S. Chile mining relations in both lithium and copper, where there's been a lot of back and forth knowledge and technical expertise and and that sort of thing. So anyway, in Chile, you have the oldest and driest desert on Earth. In a way, the driest place on Earth, except for some sub-regions of Antarctica. Mm. So it's extremely dry. But the oldness is important because there's a huge amount of scientific value in the kind of evolutionary processes and the origins of this desert that are worth thinking about, you know, while all this mining is happening and sort of destroying some of those landscapes. So right now, mining for lithium happens in the Atacama Salt Flat, which is in the Atacama Desert, that really old dry desert I just mentioned. And the salt flat is enormous. I live in Rhode Island, the state of Rhode Island, which is a very small state, but the Atacama Desert is like two thirds the size of the state of Rhode Island, right? It's very big. And it is like just breathtakingly beautiful and strange and with a very rich, both natural and indigenous history. And so when you're standing on it, you are in this very unusual landscape that's gray and white and those kinds of shades ringed with these towering Andean mountains. So I don't know if you've been, had the privilege of, you know, going to the Andes, and, and but these not. huge, you know, very tall mountains, right? Very dramatic. Some of them are volcanic, right? So that's the kind of landscape. The surface is a very crusty kind of surface, but it's not barren. 
So when you're walking around, especially in like ecological preserves and places where, where there's been good conservation, there are these surface lagoons and there are beautiful flamingo species that are endemic to the region mm. that are just chilling out in the lagoons because they, with their filtered gills, kind of just suck up little species that live in the salty kind of water there. And that's how they survive. And so there's a whole ecosystem that relates to this salt flat. And there's a lot of migratory birds as well as other animals. Underneath the salt flat, at various depths, right, uh, there is subsurface brine deposits. So these are deposits of extremely salty water, much saltier than the oceans, um, that within them have various kind of valuable minerals suspended. And one of those is lithium. And so the basics of the way this works is that the subsurface brine is pumped to the surface. So you can think of like a giant straw or whatever, just kind of any, you know, well pumping system pumped to the surface. And then it is arrayed in these enormous evaporation ponds. And it is moved from pond to pond with different chemicals being added, removed, such that, you know, to reach maximum lithium concentration. But what's most important is actually the work of just solar radiation. Because in addition to being the oldest and driest desert on Earth, in general, this desert is considered like a poly-extreme environment. That means it's super dry, but it's also super sunny and it's super windy, right? It's just like super high altitude. It's everything. And all of those conditions are very auspicious for the evaporation of brine, right? If you're going to put water out in a desert like that, it's going to be thrown up into the air very quickly. It's funny. I was reading about this and I, and I got to the part where, you know, I knew that the brine was down there with these elements in it. And I was thinking like, well, how do they, you know, reduce it down to the elements? And... <laughs> It's like they throw it in a big pool and let it sit there for a while and come back to it. It's weirdly low tech, but also exactly. weirdly like space inefficient, just like big, it's all just big things. sprawling, all that fluid sitting out in the sun. You just need giant swaths of land for this. Absolutely. You need a lot of land. And then there's a question of, well, we're throwing water into the air in one of the driest desert or in the driest desert on earth, mm. you know, what is the implication of that? Of course, what mining companies will say is it's brine, not water. But well, what scientists that I've spoken to and read have, will say is, well, the water and the brine are actually connected in ways that we don't even fully understand because there hasn't been quite enough research on it. But mm. the subsurface water system, the, they are porous boundaries. How porous they are is a subject of scientific debate between underground freshwater, which is absolutely essential to human life, to animal life, to other industries, right? porous interfaces between that and then the, the subsurface brine. And so the question is, and this is the, the real point of scientific debate, is whether pulling out that brine is actually pulling down the freshwater through the forces of gravity and nature abhors a vacuum and the whole thing, but also because the downward pressure in the nucleus of the salt flat creates a depression which further pushes down the brine and also potentially further pulls down the water at the edge, the freshwater. So there's a whole complex kind of desert hydrology. And in terms of environmental impacts, let's just talk about what's nasty about it. I mean, I think yeah. people can get sort of a picture. When you're digging up big pieces of land, you're using lots of land for these evaporation pools. Presumably when uh, the water evaporates, it's not just lithium left behind, right? There's all sorts of other stuff. What happens to all that other stuff? What is the sort of environmental risk here? Right. So there is like piled up, you know, waste salts that are left behind, the companies will say those aren't toxic, but, you know, physical waste being moved from underground and piled around in a place that, you know, nature did not intend it. Mm -hmm. I think the most important thing, though, is what I was just talking about, which is the watershed. 
because this watershed is already exhausted. And that's a technical definition, not just, you know, me being an environmentalist, like it's, it's called exhausted by the Chilean Water Agency. And there are multiple reasons for that. There are multiple compounding factors. I will definitely call out the copper industry as being the worst. The copper industry uses so much fresh water that they've had to switch to desalination plants because there's not enough fresh water. <laughs> and they have built the largest desalination plant in the world, I'm pretty sure, to serve one enormous copper mine in Chile. Wild. And that desalination plant is on the coast. The, obviously, the water is desalinated there from the seawater. Then very energy intensive process, polluting. And then that water is shipped to the highlands where the copper mines are. So that's that's the number one impact on on freshwater is how it's been exhausted. You know, a lot of it because of the copper industry, which is in the same location. And copper, we should also maybe just say as a side note, also expected to rise considerably Dramatically. under clean energy. Right, because of the copper wiring in the cars, the copper wiring in the transmission lines, the charging stations, all of our whole electrify everything is very copper dependent under current technologies. So there's that. There's climate change, which is further desertifying. I don't ever know how to pronounce that. The desert, right? Like it's making it drier. So there's that issue. And then there's agriculture, there's human consumption, and there's lithium, right? So there's a variety of stressors on the same water system. And as a result, it's been called exhausted. And they say that they're not going to give out more freshwater permits, X, Y, and Z, right? So that's just like the context that it's in. And where the debate is with lithium is how much removing vast quantities of brine, you know, we're talking about like thousands of liters a second, I believe, if I don't have that wrong, um, vast quantities of brine by these two major uh, mining companies, SQM and Albemarle, is further playing into this watershed exhaustion. Another thing that's interesting to note, to go to sort of a totally different type of environmental impact that we humans may not think about very much, which is microorganisms. Mm. So what's fascinating about the brine is that it's actually an ecosystem. It's not just dead salt water, whatever that would mean, right? Microorganisms live in the brine, both in the surface salty lagoons, but also in the subsurface um, brine deposits. There are microorganisms, and those are important for a variety of reasons, but including they hold clues to evolution and the origins of life on Earth because of how old mm. this desert is, and also how poly-extreme the environment is replicates earlier Earth conditions, but also like Mars conditions. So if we want to understand, could there be life on other planets? Scientists say we need to understand how these microorganisms can survive in not only this, you know, super extreme in all the ways I listed, but also like some of the saltiest environments. And saline is, is really hard on organisms, right? And so it's amazing that they can survive in this hypersaline context. Um, but we're basically just sucking them out about, you know, we're killing, you know, they're not going to survive the process of lithium yeah. extraction. So, and then again, may not, you know, depends on the listener how much that matters, but there's a lot of science that says these microorganisms are important for a variety of reasons, and we should think about conserving them. There's a lot more detail in the report, but let's just sit, consider it settled. <laughs> <The> lithium, <laughs> mi lithium mining everywhere that it exists is pretty environmentally nasty. And another thing you point out in your report is that almost everywhere it exists, there is opposition to it, local opposition to it, you know, indigenous and other groups organizing to protect landscapes, organizing to protest the fact that they're not consulted, their informed consent was not gained, you know, sort of all the capitalist evils that spring to mind when people think about mining are on the loose in lithium mining and, and it's opposed almost everywhere it is happening. And that is kind of the, just the important background here for everybody who's thinking about decarbonization in this way, which is that 
like we said, yes, it's going to be better to do this than to continue pulling gazillions of tons of fossil fuels out of the earth every second of every day. It's going to be better, but every step you take towards more lithium, there are tangible harms being done to vulnerable people. That's something we can't ever forget as we're tossing these things around. Right now, it's relatively small. There's four countries involved. There's a lot of talk about vast expansions coming. There's a supposed supply crunch over the next five to 10 years as like demand is rising much faster than supply. But there are also, as the report points out, these huge, huge discrepancies in projections, depending on who you believe, how much lithium is going to be needed. So just give a sense like how fast and big the lithium um, mining sector is going to expand. What, how big is the pressure to expand here? And what do we mean? Are we talking about twice the size, 10 times the size? It depends who you ask, as you already noted, right? <laughs> and uh, everyone agrees, big increase. But beyond that general consensus, uh, there are differences. Um, and I know you recently had a conversation uh, about modeling, right? And like how, yes. how how much goes into modeling. And I, I have never been more convinced of this than I am now, <laughs> uh, both in diving into the existing models and what their assumptions are, but also in seeing some of the contrast with our report, which we'll get into later, and how different the findings can be if you change some of those assumptions or play around with yeah. them in some way, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, models are not like written in stone or laws of nature. There are a lot of human decisions um, made sometimes with political and economic interests at play, right? So everyone agrees, big increase, right? As you noted earlier, like lithium was and actually could still be considered a rather small market. For a long time, it's mainly been about personal electronics, uh, but also it's used in in some construction, glass materials as a coolant. It's used in lithium as a psychiatric medication. But it's really like the EV market that has been a game changer, right? And what's been the case for the past couple of years and will be the case even more so going forward is that batteries for passenger EVs specifically are the number one driver of demand for new lithium, mm -hmm. right? So that's also important to sort of keep in mind. They vastly outweigh any other end use in terms of why there's so much, you know, talk about lithium demand. You know, so a couple of ways to cut the cake, um, and, I'm, and I'm drawing on a mix of our report and other existing, you know, forecasters out there. One way to think about it, and this comes from our report, is that if we just look at today's demand for EVs and then project outward to the future, taking into account growth, et cetera, to 2050, the U.S. market alone would need triple the amount of current global production. Mm. So that's one way, because it's hard to wrap our heads. I mean, there's many ways to say the same thing, right? That's one way to say it, right? Mm. The U.S. in 2050 would need three times what the whole world needs now. Yes. And that's, again, not thinking about all the other countries that have their needs, right? So that's one way to think about it. Another that I find can find a little more concrete because it talks about individual minds, and here we're drawing on Benchmark. Uh, they're a big forecaster, which people have opinions about, right? So I'm not wading into that. But they are a big forecaster, and they influence government a lot, particularly. So Benchmark Mineral Forecasting says we'd need a 200% increase in the number of lithium mines, the just number of discrete mines, by 2035, so a closer time frame. 
uh, to meet expected demand for EVs. That's globally, not U.S. specific. So we need a lot more lithium mines, you know, as discrete entities. But but <laughs> this is what breaks my brain about all this. You know, you say it can take up to 16 years yes. to get a mine going. Like right. these are not pop-up operations. So 200% more mines in the next 12 years? Just Yes. It seems hard to meet that. Now, what will happen, and this we could talk about the implications of this, um, and there's a lot of debate in the in the climate, environmental, et cetera, community, but you know, some of those time frames might get shortened because there's a huge pressure in the US, in Europe, and in some other jurisdictions to fast track mines. Like right now, yes, it takes a decade to, we say 16.5 years, you know, it could be shorter, it can be a decade in some cases, but we're talking about at least a decade, right, to develop a mine, to go through financing, getting your financial backers, the permits, to get the quote unquote social license, which is like an industry term for like communities, like giving you bare minimum, you know, sort of agreement or something. The, like the thought of all that happening lots, lots faster does not calm my heart does not fill my heart me neither and i and i think you know there's a whole separate conversation i know you've dealt with this at you know on other writing and on the show but like you know this permitting conversation i think speed gets equated with outcomes in a wrong way i mean saying we're going to do everything faster doesn't actually always make it faster because what that means is there's various corners being cut which just turns into lawsuits so Mm -hmm. actually making the timeline for nepa faster in the u.s case does not actually per se mean we're going to get the lithium faster. So that's a separate conversation, but I just want to throw that in there. Okay, so a lot more lithium. I'll throw out one other statistic because it's it's the one that alarms me the most when I try to grapple with it. It's the International Energy Agencies from 2020 or 2021 from a report a couple of years ago where they said compared to a 2020 baseline, we need 42 times as much lithium in 2040. Mm. that's like an enormous increase. I think that means 4,200% if I understand math. (laughs) I don't know, or 4,300%, whatever it is. It's like, it's really big. It's a large increase, right? It was larger than any other mineral they tracked. Yeah, and this is wild. Like just, you you know, I I don't even know that we have to spell it out, but just like let, you know, listeners just imagine like what is a global rapid herding toward more mining? How is that going to play out? It's, uh, you know, the the idea that it's going to be done more sensitively or with more consultation with indigenous groups, et cetera, et cetera, when everyone is basically panicking and trying to do it as fast as possible, it's just not a great recipe. Right. As a last comment on lithium, sure. let's talk a little bit about the coming supply crunch and where, you know, one of the big things the report talks about is these four countries are the main lithium mining countries now, but obviously with this sort of global stampede on there's going to be a lot more mines in other countries so where can we expect mining to branch out and what is the timeline of that versus the timeline of this crunch one thing to note at the top is that there already is a lithium supply crunch right we're already in that domain so to speak and the way that we know that is that the prices for lithium have been historically high right because supply demand price etc mm-hmm. right so so um you know the supply is not keeping up with demand and that is important to our like renewable energy kind of wonk and, and industry folks on the show that are listening to the show, because that is in turn changing something about battery pricing. For decades, and for sure since 2010, which is when Bloomberg started tracking this, but you can go back to earlier data from other sources. For decades, lithium-ion batteries have been decreasing in price in a sort of secular trend based on R&D, economies of scale, innovation, manufacturing efficiencies, all the things that make things cheaper under capitalism when that when that occurs. 
And that is priced in kilowatt hour. And the sort of like the the idea was we're going to one day get to $100 per kilowatt hour. And that will get us to price parity without taking into account subsidies with ICE vehicles, right? So that was the right. sort of golden, like, you know, the target. In 2021, they plateaued. They stopped that decrease. And we didn't know what was going to happen in 2022, but now we do. So in 2022, they rose for the first time. And we went from like 130-something, 135, I think, to like 151 per kilowatt hour. And I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be like a doomsday. Or I'm not saying they'll increase now from here on out. I'm not, I don't actually think that. But I do think it's important because the reason battery prices for the first time since Bloomberg started tracking this have increased in price is because of raw materials. So in an interesting way, because we've done all this manufacturing efficiency and R&D and we really cut costs on all other parts of the process, Mm -hmm. the raw material components are logically a larger component of the cost structure. At the same time, coincidentally, those raw materials have increased in price in their cost, right? So that is why batteries are now more expensive. I'm sure things will settle in whatever way, especially as we build up a lot more battery manufacturing capacity around the world, which will depress prices. But it, it is true that this is starting to call into question, further question, the affordability of EVs because these are the main and most expensive component of an EV. Right, which in turn sort of uh, complicates these long-term projections of EVs, which in turn complicates the long-term projections of lithium demand, like the whole thing. It's, it's, uh, all, it's all circularly interrelated, but we can definitely say that there's been a huge rush to mine lithium in the U.S., which is just another reason for people in the U.S. to think about this. is not just about stuff that happens far away. This is happening here. We have some 50-odd projects with some level of financial backing or permitting in Nevada alone, in one state. Wow. Um, that's tracked by the Center for Biological Diversity, by, by Patrick Donnelly. Shout out to him, because he's been tracking that. It's really hard to compile those statistics. And the U.S. government is throwing money, $700 million at Ioneer's mine in Rhyolite Ridge. That's the Department of Energy just gave them a huge loan. The auto industry is throwing money. GM just gave $650 million in, in equity stakes to Lithium Americas for their Thacker Pass mine, which is, by the way, in federal court right now uh, over fast-tracking concerns uh, raised by environmentalists. So, you know, the whole thing. All of these are facing opposition. Like everywhere, almost everywhere a lithium mine exists, it seems like there's some opposition. It's funny. That's one of the things I've been sort of joked about with the in- Inflation Reduction Act is like everyone loves the idea of onshoring the whole supply chain. Like that's a as a slogan. Everybody's super into that. But there are lots of links in the supply chain that are pretty nasty. I'm curious how what their political valence will be once people get a little closer look at like what mining and processing of lithium really looks like, whether they'll be so excited about onshoring it. You know, in the report mentions in the brine area, there are new techniques of mining lithium from brine that are less impactful than the traditional sort of um, leave it out in an open pit while the sun bakes it uh, technique. So it's not that lithium mining is a is a fixed quantity of environmental destruction. There are right. better and worse ways to do it. Could be better or worse governed, regulated, all these kind of things. But we got to move on to the second half of your report. So the report focuses on, it says, okay, we need to electrify, but we'll let's, we'd like to do it in the, in the least lithium-intensive way possible. And so you focus on the U.S. transportation sector because, as you note, that's a huge, huge driver of lithium demand. And you focus on 
personal vehicles, which are the bulk of U.S. transportation emissions, and therefore they're going to be the bulk of lithium uh, demand in the future. And so the whole question here is, how could we decarbonize the U.S. personal vehicle sector in the least lithium-intensive way? otherwise known as increasing lithium efficiency, getting more mobility. I think this is the title of the report, more mobility out of less lithium is the yeah. idea here. This is, I think, a great part of the report because in some sense, once you see it on paper, it seems obvious. Like, yeah, we could, if lithium's bad, we should think about how to use less of it. It just seems sort of obvious, but like it is wild how much total auto domination in the U.S. is just taken for granted and invisible in most projections of car demand and for lithium demand. It's just an unspoken assumption that the current pattern of auto insanity in the U.S. Yeah. is going to continue. So it's just, in a sense, it's, I think, a great advance in the state of things just to say Maybe we could do it differently. There are Maybe there are other ways, other ways to do it. Yeah, it's not, yeah. as you say in that first quote, it's not a fixed thing. We have choices here. There are different ways things could go. So you lay out four scenarios. The first scenario is just assume electrification of the existing uh, number of cars in the U.S. and otherwise everything stays the same. The car, the auto intensity, the the land use the amount of car use stays the same and we just try to electrify all the vehicles in a sense i think it's tempting to sort of take that as the default scenario but one of the points you make in the report which i think is important is it's not obvious that that's the easiest way to go it's not even obvious that that's possible so let's first just talk about that sort of it because it seems like kind of what we're stumbling toward which is right. just take the cars for granted and try to electrify as many of them as possible so just tell us maybe what's wrong with that the sort of status quo we're stumbling toward right well first of all it assumes an enormous quantity of evs are going to be bought by people <laughs> Which is, you know, in a way, an assumption of all of our scenarios, to be fair. All of them involve what we could call the mass deployment of electric vehicles. None of them eliminate electric vehicles entirely. Sure. They just change their relative, you know, predominance within the transportation mix right. in various ways, right? But in scenario one, the most need to be purchased, right? And so first and foremost, it's a question of millions of individual consumer decisions going as planned. And it's a question of how much our policy environment and especially financial incentives will need to change pretty rapidly in order to make that a reality. Because mm -hmm. I don't know that IRA is going to cut it. Putting aside all the debates over the specific mechanisms IRA uses, it gives rebates, you know, at a, mm -hmm. below a certain income threshold that can get up to, I think, 7,500, you know, not, not nothing. And so that's the approach in the IRA. But I already noted, and we've talked about how these vehicles might be getting more costly over time. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's different trends at the same time. On the one hand, the batteries are getting more expensive, which will make the cars more expensive. On the other hand, now all the car companies are saying we're going to outcompete one another on price and we're willing to forsake a little bit of profit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, yeah. these, are few, these are uncertainties. I don't know, you know, which will on the balance, which will, you know, be the prevailing trend. Well, also in the key dynamic you point out in the report, which is if if lithium is demand is as high as it would be looking at the U.S. car fleet, that 
exacerbates the crunch, exacerbates the high price. Yes, right. So in a sense, trying to sell more is going to is almost self-limiting. Yes, that's an excellent point. And so that is one problem with with scenario one. Like, will we have to increase subsidy? I'm not anti-subsidy. I'm not like anti-government spending. You know, I'm like in favor of government spending. So it's not like I'm like trying to do some like taxpayer efficiency thing um, or like starve the beast thing. It's not about that I mind spending public money. It's like on what, right? Because all of this involves public money, whether it's Mm -hmm. EV subsidies, whether it's, you know, those might be more invisible forms of public spending, but the more visible forms are the transportation authorities and, you know, of course, highways. So all this involves public money. But this one involves trying to use public money to shape individual consumption decisions. And that's not the most efficient way. Right. And it would be more efficient. And we'll go through this with scenarios two, three and four to actually use that uh, to beef up mass transit. So that that's one issue with scenario one. Uh, or a couple, I guess. Another, though, relies on peer research, not our own research, but other folks that we cite, which say that we will get to zero emissions faster if we get people out of cars. Mm. And so we don't directly test that because all we're looking at are 2050 scenarios. So we're assuming zero emissions in 2050. And what we're playing with is like, how are we going to get there? But other people that test, will we get to zero emissions? Or like, how fast will we show? And this stands to reason, right? Like, the fewer vehicles on the road, the more people are sharing the same vehicles, uh, the easier it is to electrify um, more quickly. Because if you electrify a bus, you deal with many people's transit at once, right? And also, even before you electrify the bus, that's still like a net positive. If you're getting people out of an ICE car into a bus, like you've dealt with some carbon emissions before you even make it an e-bus, Right. And so there's a lot of, you know, this is what I like to say to the carbon hawks among us, right? To people that really unilaterally focus on, which I in some ways count myself among, but I'm less unilateral. Like I'm also thinking about biodiversity and, you know, all these other issues. But if for people that are like, all I care about is the emissions trajectory, we will lower emissions faster if we don't do the super car dependent one-to-one EV to ICE swap, right? Or ICE to EV, excuse me. And it's not even one-to-one. It's more. We have to produce more EVs over time because of population growth. Demand is rising. Yeah. yeah. Population is rising. Yeah. I mean, you point out that it's there's some doubt in, in a lot of scenarios and modeling whether we can even hit the 1.5, whether we can get on a 1.5 consonant scenario or even a two degrees consonant scenario with this sheer volume of cars that we have to electrify, right? It's just uh, it's enormous amount and it's rising all the time. So lowering the amount of cars is lowering the target to more achievable level. So that's important. So I just want to get, you know, I think people maybe think that so this is kind of the default thing we're heading toward, which is just samesies with all the cars, except they're electric now. Whether or not you think that's the best way to go, there's real reason to doubt whether it's possible to do that, certainly on the time frame we're talking about. Especially as the cars get bigger, right? Like there's that yes. other research that's not ours. We do a lot on battery size, so we'll talk about that. But there's a separate research uh, academic article that just came out a few months ago showing that the e-hummer, like when we get really large, like God. really gargantuan batteries – cancel out their climate benefits, meaning the the carbon intensity of that supply chain to produce that vehicle adds to emissions rather than decreasing them, mm. right? And so that's when we get at the real extremes of car size. I'm not saying every EV is an e-hummer. It's just not, right? But unfortunately, our trend is trending upward in size. And so we also, back to our earlier analysis of supply chains, have to think about emissions across the supply chain, right? And when we produce enormous vehicles that then are shipped on container ships, like these just enormous you know, production networks, 
and if those are not fully decarbonized as production networks, then we have to factor that in. Yeah, so that's another yeah. thing. Yeah, embedded, embodied uh, emissions are huge here. So um, you have four scenarios. The first one is just um, everything stays the same except it becomes electric. And then uh, scenarios two, three, and four are sort of, I guess, escalating versions of Europeanizing yes, <laughs> Amer- American <laughs> American cities. I'll just say up front, um, you know, you summarize towards the end here with relative to scenario one, with scenario two, you get an 18% reduction in lithium demand. Scenario three, it's 41%. And scenario four is 66% reduction in lithium demand, which is, that's not marginal, right? So these alternate scenarios you're talking about are real substantial reductions in lithium demand. More than I expected. Yeah. Like, honestly, as someone who's looked at this for a while but never read a study like this because none, none existed. Yeah. Um, but my assumption was it was going to be a little lower, though still important, mm. still significant, but it was higher. And and it gets even higher over time. Like, if we go all the way to 2050, we can get a bigger spread, partly because by that point we have more recycling feedstock to work with yeah. and, you know, other changes that are more cumulative, you know, take place. And so it, it, it gets really dramatic when we look at best and worst case in, like, the year 2050, for example. But and this is maybe an area where I need you in specific because I know you always have good things to say about thoughts like the ones I'm having, which are I'm looking at these scenarios and I'm just like, really? Like, so, so just scenario two, the first level above one. Yeah. It says, and I quote, levels of car dependence in U.S. cities and suburbs are reduced to the equivalent of comparable EU cities. And like, to me, just that, just getting U.S. cities and suburbs on par with comparable EU cities is alone just mind boggling in its scope and its political difficulty. And I just look at that and I feel daunted. And I I know you're, you're always going on about, we need to expand our imaginations. We need to push out the window open. We need to think more about what's possible and not feel locked in. But like, and you know, and scenario three goes much more ambitious farther than that. And scenario, and and then scenario four is basically like every U S city becomes Vienna. Every U S city becomes not just average EU city, but state of the art progressive, cutting edge. Yes. And I just like have a lot of trouble seeing that happening. So like, where do you, how do you think about, or do you bother to think about the political, the political realism of what are very, very substantial reforms in U S land use and habits and public spending and on and on. Yes. So, there's a lot to dig into there because I absolutely do think about it and, and I'm a political scientist for whatever that's worth and also <laughs> someone who's done a lot of political organizing, legislative advocacy, et cetera. So as utopian as I can sometimes perhaps sound or feel or whatever, I mean, I have ambitious ideas. You know, I'm a big proponent of the Green New Deal, et cetera. I do think about the brass tacks of moving people on issues and of what regulations or what legislation would be necessary and, you know, what's possible at the state or local versus federal level. And I'm, you know, I want to talk about all those things. I want to say something first, though, is just like to a set piece, which is we've been treating these as like four big different pathways, right? Which mm-hmm. which they are. But what's important to note is that there's sub pathways and sub pathways, meaning there's actually like dozens of scenarios that we test because there's a lot of on off switches that can apply to each of these. 
And one key one is battery size. So let's go back to that scenario one that we've been talking about, which is the status quo, but electric or the status quo plus population and consumption growth, you know, but everything EV. And it turns out it makes an enormous difference. If we can just get back to where we were a few years ago with average battery size in the U.S. or mm-hmm. where like our peer nations are or peer, you know, affluent nations like in East Asia and, and Western Europe are with battery size. We're now like double the size of a decade ago. We're double the size of the global average. And what's concerning is God, that that's it's, it's so insane. dumb. It's so dumb <laughs> um, because there's so many reasons it's dumb. Those cars are unaffordable to most Americans. Like the larger the battery, the more expensive the car. But like it's also just being sold in a sort of luxury framework, right, of like these fancy pickup trucks and fancy SUVs that contractors aren't using. I mean, it's just like affluent suburbanites for the most part. And they're using them to go to the grocery store, not to go hiking or to like haul stuff. I know. And I get that like, you know, every new consumer product you want to, you know, you start on the luxury end, you make it an object of, of desire yeah. and then you, and then you move down. But like, we're like 10 years into this shit and, and it's getting worse. It's like moving getting, in the opposite yes, direction. I know. Like they're getting bigger the and bigger. Leaf and like, now it's like everything is the Ford e-lightning I know, or whatever. Like, okay. Let's get like a, of some friggin' hatchbacks now. Like right, we did right. it. We Which, did it. Like, Let's again, move on. is what most working and middle-class Americans can afford and, and drive. Yes. And so we're getting really crazy with the average battery sizes double, as I said, you know, the global average double where we were a decade ago. And it's concerning because it's a trajectory. So like, are we going to be triple that in a few years? Like, where is this ending? <laughs> um, but, The good news is that we can be as car dependent, we can change like nothing about the political, social, cultural, infrastructural status quo. Like we could stay with our car dependency in all the ways that that's locked in. And we could get really significant decreases in lithium volume, especially as we get closer to the end of our, you know, we get to 2050. Mm -hmm. So in 2050, just snapshot year, because that's our final year that we model, we could have 42% less lithium in scenario one, the car dependent mm. scenario, if we have more normative, I don't want to say smaller because it's misrepresents it. It's like more normative sizes. Normaler. Normaler. <laughs> Normaler batteries. Like where we were recently and where most of the world is now. Like when I first read through, I thought that the reduced battery size demand in your scenarios was a causal result of land use changes and walkability. No, it's a separate parameter. So so you're just turning that knob for each scenario independently. Exactly. Which is why and I'll just say it here because it's my favorite of our findings cuz it's the most dramatic that if we look, compare scenario 1 like the car dependent scenario and with large batteries, ones that are currently larger than average but is like the direction we're going, We compare that to scenario four with small batteries, with perfect recycling, with everything like ideal, utopian, Vienna, whatever. In 2050, 92% different in lithium volume demanded, (laughs) right? So there are radically different futures ahead of us. And it's helpful to look at the extremes. Even if our worst case is like unlikely on the negative end and our best case is like unlikely on the positive end, like let's look at the total spread because that's the spectrum we're working with. And that's where we can use policy, behavioral change, cultural norms, whatever is available to us as tools to shift people towards the best case scenario. You highlight three specific changes that are the most efficacious kind of levers to pull to reduce lithium demand. There's reducing demand for vehicles overall, densifying urban centers, and then reducing battery size. 
you know, I get reducing demand for passenger vehicles. You do that with better public transit, better land use. You do that in part through densifying urban centers, increased walking, and stuff like that. But it's it's uh, notable that battery recycling, which people are quite bullish about, doesn't really make much of a dent for quite a few years. So yes. maybe just tell us a little bit about what is the state of recycling, what you expect from it. Yeah. So what's interesting about recycling is that you need to have enough feedstock available, meaning like if you're going to use recycled, recovered materials to manufacture batteries instead of new mining, which is the goal, mm-hmm. we want to use circular economy kind of approaches so that the the end of life batteries and also the manufacturing waste, all the things that are like spit out by our system, like re-enter the loop and we close the loop. And so we're, instead of new mining, we're sort of like we're mining batteries, right? Instead of mining the Atacama Desert. Right. So that's great. We're super proponents of it. And there's very optimistic results shown in terms of how we can get close to 100% material recovery. The technology is there. That's what I want to start with. Maybe it's too obvious for you to even say, but I'll just I'll just put it out there. Signposted is just even best case recovering 100% of materials. You still have to get enough materials in the loop in the first place. That's where I was going. We're several years out from that being significant because we don't have the level of EV penetration yet. And then forget about just the current level of EV penetration. How long do people own their cars? Hopefully these cars last a minute, right? Like they're durable goods, right? So it might be 10 years, you know, whatever it is, right? Until we're actually end of life with those batteries. And then it's interesting. I'll just throw this out there because I think it's kind of interesting and it helps people understand how materials cycle through systems. So when we get to the end of life of a battery in a car, it's no longer gives the power and energy density that a car requires to move quickly um, and for for distance. At that point, there are a number of other applications we could use the battery yeah. for. And we often go to the grid as the first thing, and that's great, you know, backup storage or, or primary storage, even on an energy grid, because of variable solar, wind, et cetera. So we can store energy. But also we can even use it for less intense mobility applications, right? Mm. So like a city bus does not move as quickly. It also gets much more frequent, you know, overnight charging. You know, there's a variety of ways in which buses strain their batteries less and can work with a, a second life battery. So there's lots of interesting applications, but there's a critical choice there. Like, do we put the battery in a second life application or do we strip it of its materials and use those materials to become feedstock for new. And I'm not trying to make it like a zero sum thing, though I guess at the literal cell level it is, right? Like either one or the other is happening. Don't you want to do both? I mean, can't you completely exhaust the battery and then get them? It puts the horizon back, you know, defers the horizon because if we're reusing then, and reduce, reuse, recycle, that old environmental thing is actually useful to remember. So, you know, we're talking about reducing lithium demand in this report. We're also talking about reusing and recycling at the sort of end of life, right? But you first reuse, then you recycle, but it just pushes out the timeframe for when we'd have enough recycling feedstock to really be replacing significant amounts of new mining. Right, right. And, you know, one other way I like to, just as a metaphor, like think about it is, over the pandemic, we've had lots of debates on different public health tools. And one thing that public health experts said about the vaccine is that if we don't reduce the spread in other ways, we're asking the vaccine to do too much work. Right. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think that way about recycling and like, I think people gravitate to recycling because like nothing else has to change. <laughs> and also because it's a itself a business opportunity, right? There's a lot of new investment mm. in recycling facilities. So it's sort of like, oh, that's the, the silver bullet. Like we're going to get recycling to sort of totally replace new mining. Well, maybe in 2050 or 2070 or something that could start to be possible. 
but not in the near term. And so we need to do other things so that we're not expecting recycling to be the number one demand reducing tool. Right. So you're you're reducing demand for lithium in the first place helps recycling play a bigger role. Recycling, it helps yeah. decarbonization, yep. you know, in addition to helping reduce the need for mining and injustice and all that other stuff. It just makes the lever you can pull that makes almost everything we want <laughs> easier to do. Yeah. So you have these uh, scenarios that basically involve, you know, and this is stuff I, I know Volt's audience knows very well, just your basic sort of densification, helping walkability, bike paths, um, all that kind of stuff. So let's just say a bit, because I don't want this to get lost, in addition to all the benefits of reducing lithium demand in terms of our ability to decarbonize on schedule and our just having enough and getting recycling going better. It's also worth noting that all these changes being discussed in the transportation sector have numerous co-benefits and specifically are extremely beneficial to the poorest and most vulnerable. This is all completely extrinsic to the greenhouse gas discussion. Just these changes you're talking about making in transportation are good for a bunch of other reasons. And so I think we pro- like probably we mostly get that, but let's just say a brief word about sure. how transportation in the U.S. is specifically a kind of source of injustice yeah. and how these reforms would, would serve justice. There's so many things to talk about here that we won't get to them all uh, <laughs> because it, it's, it's such a sort of nexus of where so many injustices, uh, inequalities, and also inefficient uses of resources kind of intersect. Yes. You know, one thing to remember is just how financially burdensome car ownership is for low income and working class and even middle class people buying the car or leasing the car, the auto insurance, the maintenance of the car and the gasoline uh, until we electrify. Right. Uh, You know, caveat there on gasoline point, but are all very expensive and they're more expensive the lower income you are. They're like a bigger portion of your overall right. income, right? And they're also more expensive if you're lower income because you're more likely to have an older car, which requires both more maintenance and more gas per mile. And so we think about car use as a form of freedom in the U.S. And there's tons of scholarly mm. books written on this and, you know, just a million pop culture examples and, and just the advertising of the auto industry itself. Like it's thought that like car ownership is like a key to freedom understood as this like sort of spatial mobility. Like you go Mm. wherever you want, right? Super generational though, super generational thing, a real generational divide. I feel like. Yes, I agree. And I, and I'm hopeful about that. And we should come back to that point because we still haven't really discussed like the policy tools and the politics of this in the contemporary moment. But I think of it almost the opposite way, which is like total choicelessness, which is unfreedom to me. A single choice. I mean, literally the only way to do something. (laughs) And I know that very firsthand, not to make it too personal, but, you know, for many years of my adult life and childhood and everything, like I like didn't use cars very much. I grew up in New York City, right? So I'm I'm Mm. weird in U.S. context. So I grew up in New York City. I use public transit. You know, we just use a car if maybe we're going upstate to the Catskills. But basically I'm going in public transit and I'm walking. Then I become 18, you know, move to other places. I moved to Portland, Oregon. I then live in Philadelphia. I live in some Latin American cities, et cetera. In all of these places, I used a bike. 
I used uh, mass transit or I walked and I did not actually get a driver's license until I moved to Providence where I currently live. <laughs> and after the first three months of biking to work, which was really not a great situation, there were no bike paths, like it was extremely stressful and dangerous, but I did it because I like bike riding and it was only 20 minutes. It wasn't a big deal. It was just a stressful 20 minutes. Once November came, I, you know, New England, right? So it got cold. It's like, oh, I guess I have to do something else to get to work. I looked into the bus situation, impossible. Like an hour bus <laughs> versus like 20 minute because I had to go downtown first, go to the main hub. I mean, the bus is for stigmatized poor people in, in Rhode Island, basically. I mean, that's how our bus system works. It's not, doesn't have commuting in mind. It doesn't, you know, have other types of users in mind. And it's just underfunded and a whole crisis. A very, very familiar, yes, <laughs> very, very places, familiar story. Right? Exactly. All Americans, I think, will have some familiarity with. And so I got a license. Like, I was forced to get a license, and I started, you know, using my partner's car, which I had never driven before, to get to work. And I've experienced that as a constraint. Like, I have one sure. option. And more stress. I mean, this, the stress. science on this is very well settled. Like, you probably were taking years off your life by switching to a car, just from the noise stress. The Exactly. But so there's lots of benefits of, of moving us into these other scenarios. Let's talk about the policy levers that yes. you're talking about. So, um, you know, a lot of these I think will be familiar to my audience here, just sort of urbanism stuff. But did you have particular – because I know one of the things the report says is that transportation decarbonization policy, insofar as it's popped up in the U.S., especially at the federal level, is very car-centric. So, yes. so. Talk a little bit about better policy. Yeah. So I want to circle back to something you said earlier that's on this point about, you know, can we imagine the U.S. being like a European city or not the U.S., but U.S. cities? You know, that seems utopian, as you said. And I, and I understand <laughs> that. But I want to also just note that things have changed a lot in European cities recently. Yeah. And, and you've reported on this in Barcelona and maybe elsewhere. Yeah. Right. And so we could go to Barcelona. We could go to Amsterdam, Paris, London. Our global cities in Europe, like the cities that have a lot of stature, those were actually more car heavy, you know, a decade ago, two decades ago. They used policies ranging from the design of streets, right, the super blocks in Barcelona that you discussed, to like congestion pricing, to increasing mass transit options, to sometimes making mass transit free or, or lower cost, a whole battery of kind of policy tools and like significant, like in Paris, they decrease car use by 30% over 15 Wild, years. what they're doing yeah. so fast. In London, by 40% over the same time period. In Amsterdam, and we think of Amsterdam as like the cycling haven, but that's increased over time. Like they have actually used policies to make it more friendly to cycling. These things that we think of as so like exotic, like are actually the outcomes of intentional policy decisions yes. that took those cities off of a track, more getting more similar to the U.S., to a track of where they are now. So it's important to not like naturalize, exoticize, essentialize, whatever it is, like, because we could do these things too. And in fact, in cities, you know, cities and, and other localities, and even at the state level, we have a lot more options than at the federal level. So we should look at those urban experiments very closely. You know, it's duh, the GOP controls Congress. Like I am aware, I read the news, right? So I'm not super enthusiastic or waiting on the edge of my seat for some massive infusion to public transit authorities coming from the federal level. I don't think that's about to happen. Like, thankfully, we got a little in the bipartisan infrastructure. Otherwise, things would be even more dire. We didn't get anything in IRA. We didn't even get e-bikes in IRA. I mean, it's nutty, like how car centric that bill was. 
I don't know if this was inevitable and unavoidable, but it is unfortunate, though, that the whole reactionary backlash conservative movement as it exists is now more or less organizing around defending sprawl. I don't know if that was just like going to happen at some point regardless, but like it's just not good that one of two major parties is four square against all the reforms you're talking about. Exactly. There is a, this has become a culture war point, but yeah. those culture wars are a little bit less intense at the state and local level, though. Unfortunately there are yeah. there too. I'm not, you know, I'm not again, Pollyannish, but let me throw out a couple of things. So what I think would be really cool, which we couldn't directly model because of data limitations, but we do discuss is e-bikes. So we can't yet break down like what proportion of cyclists are on e-bikes and, and how much lithium is in the e-bikes for, cause the, again, the data constraints, but we know that e-bikes use so much less lithium just on the battery level and the per rider level when we compare it to any of the other e-transportation options, right? They're, they're better than buses even in terms of like the lithium use per person. And so we have had some cool stuff. So Denver, Colorado did a major e-bike subsidy experiment and it worked. It not just worked in its popularity, but it got people out of cars specifically. Mm-hmm. They, they showed that now in, in research on, on the experiment. Hawaii, I don't know where exactly it is in the legislature, but it's moving along. I think it's been introduced for a state level, big e-bike subsidy program. And there's a bunch of other cities, if we look them up, cities and even states that are looking into subsidizing e-bikes, both for the climate reasons, the affordability reasons, but also specifically to reduce car use. That's like their goal. So they're designed with that goal in mind. And they're making sure like we're subsidizing e-bikes that could replace cars for grocery store trips or commuting. And of course, uh, the more of your citizens are on bikes, the more political power. Yeah, you build a constituency. (laughs) Yeah. Which you have in places with a lot of cycling, like Portland, like literally there's like a bike lobby. I mean, I mean that in a positive sense, right? They're, they're, (laughs) They're people advocating and watching policies. There's a couple of other things that are interesting. I'm going to do one more on e-bikes because this was surprising to me. I, I, I just learned it. Um, in 2021, Americans bought nearly twice as many e-bikes as e-cars. Huh. There was a huge amount of e-bikes being bought. And I think there's like a variety of reasons for that. Some of it was like pandemic, people doing this outdoorsy stuff and the e-bikes yes. were coming on market at this. You know, so I think there's some like just like circumstantial factors there. But it's interesting. Americans like e-bikes. So like we should think about that and think about that as like a climate policy more yeah. among climate progressives. Like think about how to expand that. There's a few other things, you know, one is bad, but I want to talk about it, which is this so-called death spiral for mass transit. So there's been this ongoing thing, but it got much worse during the pandemic where lower ridership, which really dipped, of course, you know, when COVID, Mm -hmm. when there were, you know, much more limited movement due to COVID concerns. So people stopped taking transit as much, worrying that they'd get COVID if they took transit or they just weren't commuting in the first place. And then that undercut a major source of funding for transit agencies, which is the fare, and so you had this death spiral, which then they would do fewer buses or fewer trains or subway cars. And like, then that would further depress ridership because it was less reliable or less frequent. And that's the death spiral. So we're at like kind of a critical juncture for transit in this country. And we need to sort of decide, like, especially among climate folks, who are at least people thinking about this, like, yes. do we want to actually include refunding and actually more secure and sustainable funding models? that don't just rely on the fare as much or these like emergency, you know, federal or state funding, but just have more secure funding over time, more durable. 
Well, I mean, the juncture we're at is like, are we going to let our lame minimum that we have die completely? Exactly. Are we going to maintain our lame minimum? Like we need to, it's like effectively outside of New York City, we don't really have like a full-fledged worthy of Europe in hardly any city, much less like all these mid-sized cities. And they've gotten worse. I mean, some of them used to have better transportation in the past. I mean, these streetcars, all this thing was destroyed partly by auto industry lobbying. Yes. I mean, we this history is very sordid. It would have to be a huge, a real huge culture turn. Yes. But I want to say, like, it's important to remember that the cult, the first culture turn was a big one. Like getting these cities off of what they previously did, which was walking and streetcars and commuter rails and that kind of thing into the current car dependency. That happened, you know, not in our generation, but like in, you know, one more back. So it's not this stuff has not been since like the literal founding of America or whatever that you know what I mean? Like these are all things that happened over the 20th century and dramatically. And so, you know, we have the climate crisis to deal with. We also have a variety of economic crises where we want to think about redeveloping and making economic cities more flourishing. You know, we have a mm-hmm. lot of things happening at once. And it's one of those other, you know, critical moments of are we going to just let transit die or are we going to embrace it? You know, at the very least, I would love to see progressives that are climate advocates like fully embrace transit, e-bikes, all of these solutions that are good for a host of reasons that we've discussed and like center that. One of the things that sort of raised an eyebrow about this is that you, the modeling more or less assumes that lithium is going to remain dominant for the, for the foreseeable period of the study. You know, battery chemistry has lurched around a bit over the last few years and trends in battery chemistry can change pretty quickly. Like LFP was dead for a while and then all of a sudden it's roaring back. I guess I just wonder if you're worried you might be underestimating the possibility of technological improvements. Because I know, A, people have their eye on lithium as a bad thing because of the mining and all the rest of it. B, they have their eye on it because the prices are rising and it's threatening the entire, you know, the entire edifice of, of transportation electrification. So I know there's work going on trying to reduce lithium, trying to make batteries without lithium. How confident are you that at least for the next 20 years, lithium's going to stay on top. Did you give a lot of, a lot of yeah. thought to that? I have, partly because anytime I tweet about my research on lithium, someone says to me, lithium will be dead tomorrow. Don't Why are you spending uh, so much time on this? So, <laughs> I don't know if I'd go quite that far. No, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of reply guys on this point on, on, on Twitter, especially, <laughs> which has fortunately helped me, like has had the positive impact of me thinking about this question more. So I, I, I in some ways, appreciate the reply guys. Thank you, reply guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the 20-year question is an interesting one because that does feel harder for me to answer. I feel pretty confident a decade out that lithium ion batteries will be the prevailing technology. That doesn't mean the only one, but that changes will be at the margins and that they will still dominate. When we get out to 15, 20 years, I still feel like due to some costs, due to, you know, the prior investments, due to the fact that like there is just like an energy density advantage with lithium over anything else, those are still all true. And like those, I think will still make it the sort of majority technology. But after we get to 15, 20 years and beyond that, you know, I think that there could be substitutes, but let me say a couple of things. So people got very excited about the CATL, the major 
Chinese uh, battery manufacturer announcing that it was going to really commercialize and at scale the sodium battery. Yeah. That announcement was made, I think, a month ago or something like that. When you dig into the details there, they cannot make a whole battery pack for a car with sodium cells. There are still many lithium ion cells, right? Because remember a pack, the modules, the packs, we get like many cells pressed together. So we can't get the energy density a car requires with just sodium cells. We can swap in some of the lithium cells for sodium and maintain decent energy density. So that just goes to show sort of two things at once. One is that substitution is possible, but two is that we're not at a point where we have full substitution and we just get rid of the lithium altogether. So that's one thing to keep in mind. I think like a there's a bigger, I don't want to say philosophical, it's probably not the right word, but like an uh, just like a deeper question here, which is, I've used the word silver bullet already. Like, I think that regardless of what the raw materials are and their specific impacts, and it might be true that sodium is less impact than lithium. And, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely willing to agree that there would be a set of materials that for some reasons involve less environmental impact when they're mined mm-hmm. um, or they're more efficiently used or something or other. Right. So and, and so I'm also a big believer in making the batteries more efficient with the raw materials that they use, right? Getting more out Mm -hmm. of less, right? So I'm a believer in in all of those things. But what I'm not a believer in is this idea that we can just escape the dilemma of resource extraction just by technological innovation, right? This kind of sci-fi idea, you know, I like the sci-fi that's more realistic where extraction is there. Mm -hmm. Like if we look at The Expanse, you know, these kinds of shows that show these problems with extraction still exist in the future or in other landscapes, right? Right. I don't like the sci-fi idea that we just escape our earthly, you know, impact and presence. Well, you build the blue light arc reactor and it just hums and and pumps out energy, right? (laughs) And, you know, yes, maybe certain things we can be totally synthetic or we just, I don't know. But even with like hydrogen, you just had your newsletter about that. Like there's in the way that we are producing all of these climate technologies, there are going to be earthly impacts. There are going to be extractive requirements. And our goal should always to be more resource efficient, regardless of what the substrate of resources is. Right. And this is kind of the main point I want to make about this whole report and this whole sort of subject matter, which is it's not like we should improve you know, material efficiency because it'll reduce our mining effect on the environment. But there are countervailing considerations. There really aren't any countervailing considerations. No, it's like all it's, good to do that. It's better for people. It's better for decarbonization. It's better for our physical and mental health. It's better for literally the financial health of cities. Like you just go down the list. That's One of the things I think is most exciting about this report is it is an explicit attempt to get climate advocates, global justice advocates, and urbanist city advocates on the same damn page, pulling in the same direction, working with one another toward the common vision. And I've just thought that that is like sort of implicit, but it's like you don't see it translating into efficacious uh, organizing. Like you don't see those groups really working together as much as you want. So how much of this report was just had that in mind? And do you think that's a, is that too utopian? (laughs) Do you think that's a doable thing to get these interests on each other's team? There are two motivations of this report in terms of its origin, like why we, you know, decided to do it. One is back when I was first in Chile researching lithium in early 2019, I learned about the impacts, I learned about the protests, the concerns, et cetera. And I started to think like, is there a way, 
you know, maybe not to eliminate lithium, but at least to reduce the stress on landscapes and to mm. reduce the volume required. And, and I was reading these alarming forecasts at that point. And I thought, oh, there must be a study that shows that there are more and less lithium intensive ways to decarbonize transportation. Like I'll just look <laughs> that up on Google Scholar. And I tried like 30 different keywords and there was no such study. And then I asked every expert that I interviewed who was expert on transportation, battery tech, whatever, this question. And they said, oh, that study doesn't exist. It would be useful, though, just to know. It's kind of telling how utterly hegemonic the yes. kind of car centric view is. It doesn't even occur to people. It's not an askable to, question. Yeah. Don't, people don't even ask the question. So that was one origin point to this. I just wanted this data so that when I presented my work on lithium and the political economy of it, the contention, when people ask me, like, is there another way? I could say something other than, well, logically, if we had more mass transit, we'd right. need less, like right. just ipso facto or whatever. Like, so I could just say something with data. So that's one origin point. But there's another origin point that's equally important, which is, you know, I participate as a researcher, as an advocate, as a think tank person and wearing different hats, like in a variety of coalitional spaces with some of the people you just mentioned, but not with all of them at once often. So that's important, right? I think that that full spread has not quite happened yet in terms of building coalitions and constituencies that are speaking to one another. But there's some of each in a variety of political spaces. And I find that there are tension points. And I'm, this is not a novel observation at all. Like actually much, you know, ink has been spilled on this. Like, is it totally impossible to decarbonize without harming indigenous rights? Or I mean, this, these stories have been written, these analyses and thought pieces have been written. But they're not just like takes. They're also like real people trying to work through real problems mm -hmm. and not always having the data or policy tools that would kind of show a different way forward. And so aligning those, not perfectly, because I do think, you know, there's different ideologies, there's different personalities, like you can't make everyone agree perfectly, but at, at least showing that these are not as fundamentally at odds as they seem, if we envision a little bit more broadly and creatively, like what the energy transition might look like. Yes. And just do the sort of grown up thing of explicitly acknowledging that we have multiple goals, some of which are in some tension of each other and the best we can do is to balance them as best we can and try to pull in a direction that serves all of them at least somewhat, right? It's yeah. like a, an adult way of making decisions, not characteristic of uh, our society necessarily. But no. so, yeah, uh, thank you for coming on and talking through this. I mean, there's so much in this report. I feel like any chunk of this report uh, we could do a whole pod on. It's a whole, a whole thing on lithium, a whole thing on transportation, a whole thing on justice and everything else. But I, I, I do think it's um, for just those reasons you said there in your last answer, like this is much needed and much overdue. So uh, thanks for doing it. And thanks for coming on. Thanks so much. This was a great conversation. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.